Today on 10-1, we speak to actor turned producer Katie Nolan. Like many actors, I have always wanted to try producing, but have no idea where I would even start. So today we speak with Katie about how she transitioned from acting into becoming a very successful independent producer. We discuss in length her very first professional producing gig called Ghost BFF, how she got involved, how she raised money, and how it got purchased by Elizabeth Banks's production company. We also speak about Katie's first feature starring Heather Graham, and how she was able to raise money, bring on broadcasters, and find distributors for her project. Oh yeah, and how she got it into TIFF. We also get a little preview about her newest film that will be debuting at TIFF 2022 called Alice Darling, starring Anna Kendrick. Enjoy. Hey, Katie. Thanks for being my guest. Hi, Carolina. Thank you. So fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to ask a question that I've always just been too embarrassed to ask. Um, What is the difference between an executive producer, an associate producer, a co-producer, and a producer-producer? Help me. Oh, sure. Yes, there's definitely a menu of producers, uh, usually. So, I mean, some people might have different takes on this, and it also sometimes differs based on where in the world you're producing. But to me, and so I think the most common difference between them is the producer, uh, the capital P producer is really the one running with the project. They usually instigate the project. So they find the script or they find the writer or they find the IP or the idea. You know, it could be an article. They're really the ones who sort of grab onto the idea of what the project is going to be and shepherd it and champion it all the way through to the sales and the distribution or the festival premiere. It's really like an A to Z person who's on the ground. They're involved creatively, they're involved financially, they're involved managerially. It's really like they're everyone. They're doing everything. And an executive producer? An executive producer depends. Sometimes it's someone who has come on board and is bringing money to the table. Sometimes it's someone coming on board bringing casting to the table. Sometimes it's someone who's just opened some very meaningful doors to the producer and for that, you know, they're given a credit. Other times it can be an actor who wants that credit in addition to, you know, being in the project themselves. Um, So it really depends. It's sort of, I would say, I mean, it, it is a vanity credit, but at the same time, I mean, to us, we don't just dole out executive producer credits. There has to be something meaningful there. There needs to be a a meaningful contribution. And can that position sometimes be just non-paid, just a credit? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, most usually paid. So you started out working as an actor and you still work as an actor, but then you transitioned into being a producer of a series and, and of a feature. If someone were to ask you, I really want to start producing, but I don't know how, uh, what would you tell them? Yeah. Actually, I also stopped acting like a year and a half ago. I just oh, got, I out, got out of that game. I think my actra status has actually also lapsed. And it was like this hilarious moment when I got this email from actra and they were like, you're, you know, if you don't pay, you know, X amount of dollars in dues, like you'll have to start again at zero and you'll be non-union again. And I remember just being like, well, I guess that's that. And I just deleted the email because I was like, that's fine. And I was just thinking to myself, like, man, if my 19-year-old self could could like be where I'm sitting right now, like 
that actress status was everything to me. And now I'm like, I don't care, <laughs> you know? Um, well, congratulations on this next step in your career. Thanks. Yeah, it was a funny, a funny moment. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, it's so hard, you know, it's, I respect, I have such tremendous respect for actors and all that they do. And I think, I think one of the reasons why it was easier for me to exit out of that is because I think I knew always deep down that I wasn't really built to be an actor. I think I was trying to like, you know, fit a, a, a square peg in a round hole for a long time. And I, I loved the idea of being an actor, but I think, you know, I, I, I remember like watching some of my close girlfriends who are very successful now watching them prepare for auditions or hearing them talk with their auditions and just thinking to myself, like, I've actually never felt that way. <laughs> or just like, I've never prepared like that. I've never like, I think it, it, I mean, for me, it was like a very long drying up of that, of that love. But yeah, there was absolutely a huge sense of relief. And I was like, I don't have to do it anymore. This is great. But yeah, I think for anyone who's an actor who's sort of thinking about getting into producing or even just thinking about making something themselves, whether it's in a director capacity or writer capacity or anything, I would say go for it. I just, I think that as an actor, you are such an integral part of the process. You are literally the 3D manifestation of someone else's ideas and you are what people see and what people react with and emote with. But I think for me, when I realized what a small part actors had in the whole, the whole journey that's when it clicked for me. That's when I was like, well, I don't want to be part of a project for like two days or a week. I want to be part of it from like the second the idea comes up until the second it's like, you know, well, they, they actually, they they never really end. Like <laughs> they're like children. You always have these movies. But yeah, I think that's when I knew that I was in the wrong room. You know, it was like, and I think if there are actors that feel that way, you have to listen to your gut and it can be tremendously intimidating to start something and create something. But like, imagine the feeling you have when you know you've done your best work as an actor, but it's like yours and you curated the whole experience and you built your team and you, you had a hand in every single texture and every single sound and every single choice on that project. And you see it on a big screen, like it's, an intoxicating feeling. So I would just say, go for it. If you think there's something there and you want to explore your own creative capacity in other roles, it doesn't mean you're not an actor anymore. It just means you're an actor who's going to wear a few more hats. That's literally, that's it, you know, and it's probably only going to help your craft even more. Mm -hmm. So I think that's valuable. And where should people start? Should they write a script or, or try to do a short film? Is there any path that you think is the best place to start? No, I think it's so, I think it's different for everyone. Obviously, a script is a great way to start because it's very personal. It's very intimate. You can kind of go at your own pace. You know, I think if you're talking about producing specifically, I think sometimes what a lot of people think when they start producing is they have to do everything. It's like, well, if I'm going to make something, I have to write it. I have to direct it. I have to put my own savings into it. And I think that's not it. Like producing is not, I mean, it is everything, but it doesn't mean you should be also writing it and directing it. Like, if you want to produce something and you have a friend who's a great writer, be like, hey, remember that short you wrote? Like, let's make it this summer or let's let's find a director for it. Let's like package this together as a, as a trio. I think that's a good place to start because for me, producing is really about a team. It's synonymous with like building a team. So I think that's a good place to start. Like figure out what part of creation you want to be 
most active in. If it's directing, great. If it's writing, great. But like zero in on the skills that you want to develop and then work your way backwards from there and and, and you'll find a natural starting point. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about Ghost BFF. Um, from an outsider's perspective, this series seems to be your breakout project. It, mm. it has broadcasters involved. Um, can you talk about the A step of the project? How did you get started? How did you get funding for it? Um, go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, it was absolutely, you know, my first bigger thing that I produced. And I mean, in, in terms of the sort of the A starting point, I need that all of that credit goes to Vanessa Matsui, um, from whose brain this project sprung. She, I mean, we had known each other in the acting circle in Montreal for a few years, and uh, I was always like very intimidated by her. Uh, and she emailed me kind of out of the blue and just said, like, I have this this idea and it's really personal and it's about a, a girl who has a best friend who's a ghost and it's about suicide and it's about depression and it's a comedy and I was like what <laughs> like who is this person um and we chatted and I just thought it was really special and I just it was also during the days when like web stuff was still like really new and you know edgy and exciting so I think for me I was like oh a web project sounds like you know, the Wild West and a place that I think I could get my feet wet and, and figure all this out in a very forgiving medium. Um, so we met and we just got along so well. And it took a really long time to get Ghost BFF season one off the ground, harsh, mostly due to the subject matter. I think a lot of people we approached heard the word suicide and just turn the other way. Okay, wait. Um, so who were you approaching? Were you approaching production companies or were you approaching broadcasters? Like who were you guys approaching? Yeah, we approached a few pro- like bigger production companies first and then also just talking to funders or broadcasters. So how did you get and these meetings? Sorry, I'm going to keep interrupting you. I just, uh, I just... No, that's fine. I really want the details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, did you send a pitch deck to people or did you cold call them? How did you first get the meetings um, so that you could subsequently get denied? I think from what I remember, it was like a lot of cold emails. This would have been in like 2014-ish around there. Yeah, it was like a lot of cold emails, a lot of like connecting through people who knew people we wanted to talk to. We also did this pitch competition in, I think, 2014 that the CFC was part of, and we won the pitch competition. And the first, like, the grand prize was a mentorship with Anna Serrano, who was at the time, she was the the chief digital officer for the CFC. Now she, like, runs OCAD. She's just unbelievable, um, this woman. So we kind of won this mentorship with Anna, and Anna really became our champion and was like, you know, you should be talking to this person, you should be talking to this person, like, I can introduce you to this person. And she really got the ball rolling and was really the first person who sort of said, yes, there's a really good idea here and you guys need to run with it. And anything I can do to help nurture it and support it, I'll do and I'll use my network. So that, and she was an executive producer. There's an example of sort of, you know, she had a credit of executive producer on season one and it was really a thank you just for all of the doors she opened for us. So I guess that's kind of where we started. And then we heard about the TELUS Wellness Fund, uh, which was a fund mostly out of Vancouver, but they were funding projects in other provinces. And we were eligible because of our mental health angle. So we applied and we got down the road with them. But then because we hadn't really made anything, I mean, I had made shorts in the past and Vanessa had made another web series, but I think because we were 
one of the first fictional projects that the TELUS Fund was looking at. They kind of wanted to vet us a bit more. So they gave us some development funding as a way to sort of start and see what happens. And we spent, I think, a year just doing research on mental health and mindfulness and talking to a lot of people and writing the episodes. And when you say development money, um, like what kind of money are we talking about? Yeah, I think we got 47000 And it was, okay. you know, that, that budget was uh, to cover the cost of writing, research assistance, do like a full budget breakdown to do... Wait, wait, did you know how to do a budget at that point or did you just like make it up? I just, well, I just, I, I winged it. Yeah, I just... I just dove in, um, which I think you have to. I think you just have to get, if that is of interest to you, like some people don't love that stuff. I like love that stuff. So I was, you know, jazzed to disappear into, <laughs> it's so, it's so nerdy, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm, I love that stuff. So yeah, like we got, we got a chunk of change, obviously spread out. Like there were milestones we had to hit in order to keep that money going. It wasn't just like they handed us a bag of money and said, you know, talk to us when it's done. It was like a very curated, monitored process. And then, you know, the understanding was that if we, if we sort of fulfilled what the telephone was looking for and we checked enough boxes, we would be greenlit, greenlit for production financing minus what we'd already gotten in development. So that's, that's really how we kind of jammed our foot in the door. And then it sort of from there, I mean, I mean, that project, this project is such a, it's evolved so much from where it started. We shot season one for $240,000. And had you teamed up with anyone at this point or were you just kind of the, the captain of the ship? Yeah, it was really Vanessa and I just just doing it all. <laughs> and, um, and so you guys had to learn how to do like actor contracts, learning how to allocate funds towards insurance. Yeah. So this was yeah. you guys just figuring it out as you're going along. Yeah. And I had done, like I had done a lot of that stuff on shorts that I had produced previously. Like I knew, you know, I knew how actor worked, I knew the process. I, I knew how to apply for insurance. Like I'd done all that stuff, but not not for a shoot of this length. Like I'd done stuff for sort of two day shoots here or like a music video here, um, but never for, you know, a shoot of two to three weeks, um, which does make a difference, especially when it comes to, you know, budgeting and scheduling and all that stuff. But yeah, it was really just us sort of attacking it and being like, we want to make this and we want to make it how we want to make it. And if that means we have to do everything for now, then we'll do that and we'll see what happens. And what ended up happening was, I think because we had that mentality and because the project meant so much to us, I think it rubbed off on people around us. And because the team we ended up gathering for season one was just, was the same, you know, everyone, everyone wanted to make it because it was, it was important and it was, it had heart and people were willing to, you know, show up for insanely low day rates to, you know, shoot in the cold with us and make a web series about a ghost. So it just sort of, it worked. And I think that's a huge testament. Like when you, and I truly, truly believe this, like when there are creative, smart, kind people working together and you can do anything. And I think kindness is a huge factor. And I think it's something that gets pushed to the wayside very quickly in our industry because of how competitive it is, because of how hard it is. And I mean, Lindsay and I, uh, my partner in Babe Nation, we're just like, if it's, if someone's not nice, like we don't, that's it. Like there's no tolerance for that. So, and I think that's something that 
we really try, I mean, we, we pull it into every project, but um, on Ghost BFF, just purely based on the themes we were talking about and tackling, it was like really important that the whole, the whole team was doing it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. So once you're done shooting, you move into post-production. Uh, once you, you know, finish your post-production, what happens next? So, yeah, so then we're in a bit of a lull because we, you know, we made it and we didn't really think about where it was going to live. And we had had so many no's from, like we'd had a no from CBC and we'd had a no from um, some other web broadcasters. And I think Vanessa and I just got to this point where we were like, I think we just have to make it and show it to people because us trying to explain to people what it's going to be is not working. And it's such a specific idea that we just have to, we have to show it. So yeah, we had the finished product and then Vanessa's agent at the time in LA uh, was, was working with Hoo-Ha-Ha. And that's Elizabeth Banks's uh, production company, distribution channel. Yeah. It's like a digital distribution channel basically for funny ladies. Um, and yeah, so her agent sent it to her contact at Hua, and we got this call from one of Elizabeth, um, uh, Elizabeth Banks's execs just saying like, we love this and Elizabeth loves it. And like, what are you doing with it? Like, where is it living? Where is it going? And we were just like, we don't know, like nowhere. <laughs> it's just like sitting on a hard drive. Let's nothing's happening with it. We don't know. They were like, well, we'll take it. This sounds great. And so we sort of went down this road with them and they, they broadcast, they, you know, they released season one. Um, sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you again. Yeah, sure. So, um, Elizabeth Banks's company says we want it. And so how confident were you negotiating aspects of the contract? I mean, I just, I feel like I would have been really scared that everything I had just made and created would, you know, Elizabeth Banks is a very powerful and smart lady. I would be worried that I would have accidentally, sold my soul to her company without getting right. anything back. So did you know how to negotiate and, and what to ask for at the time? Um, I mean, not really at the time. Uh, most of it was done through Vanessa's agents. So they kind of like led the ship and we gave notes on, you know, deal points and things like that. But I should also mention that, you know, web content and, and digital content doesn't sell the same way that, you know, films and TV does. It's not, I think there's a bit of a misconception that's like, oh, you've sold the digital show. It's like, well, that's not, there's no written rules yet for how web content is bought and sold. So there was no money up front for hoo That was like not part of the deal. It was very much like, you know, we as creators retain the rights to the show. It's ours. We can walk at any time, but here's a chance to get insane visibility um, and numbers and views through Elizabeth Banks. And hopefully that can parlay into the next project, the next season, whatever else you want to do. So for us at that point in our careers, the exposure was more valuable than cash. So that's why we ended up saying yes to that deal. Yeah, that make that makes sense. But um, so you already had a deal with TELUS. So how did they feel about you guys making a deal where you weren't actually going to be making any money? Like was TELUS, uh, was it a grant as in you didn't have to pay them back or or was it more of a loan? Yeah, it's a recoupable advance. But it's, I mean, it's, it's this is also tricky. You know, it's like grants work a little, it depends on who you're working with. We had to check with them before we signed with them. So it wasn't like we made this deal and then turned around and said, oh, by the way, you know, you're not getting anything back. Um, we did talk to them. And, and so this, this deal doesn't involve any, 
any recoupment, but it's major exposure. And the Telus Fund was fine with that because, you know, their logo is also at the front end of the series. And we, you know, we ended up surpassing 5 million views on season one, which is amazing, especially after hearing the word no for like so long (laughs) leading up to that. So that's sort of the trade-off. And I think as independent producers, you have to make those tough decisions. You have to just sort of say like, well, do I want to get paid or do I want to make this project get out there? And I, and I, and I take my lessons and I, and I learn for the next one, or can I have both or what does both look like? Like you have to shine a light in all those corners and you learn as you go, you know, like I'm still learning so much and, you know, we make mistakes in every project that we learn from and we, we take into the next one, but you just have to trust your instincts and trust your gut and, and think really clearly about the advantages of certain certain moves. And also like And it, it did parlay into a second season. Absolutely. And that's what we wanted. Like we knew season one was gonna be tough. We knew that. But Vanessa ultimately had bigger plans for the show and wanted to take the plots further. And it was never gonna be like a one and done kind of thing. It was always like we want to do a second season, maybe even a third, we don't know. So yeah, for us it was worth it. It was like, well great, we'll take these views and We'll premiere outside of Canada, and then we'll start again and see what we can do for season two. You've had the opportunity to see an actor's career from the perspective of a producer. What did you learn watching them audition that you wish you had known when you were an actor? Just to, like, chill out, honestly. <laughs> like, Yeah, I don't know. I think that's always what I'm amazed at when I'm on – I mean, in casting is – one of my favorite parts of putting a project together, we're casting a movie right now and it's just like, oh, I could I could live on casting phone calls. They're just so fun. Um, I think the important thing to remember is like, no one's against you as an actor. I think as an actor, somehow you get in your head and you think like the casting director hates me and oh, the producers hate me. And like, like you know, I don't look right. There's all, like you automatically think about all the negatives and everything that's working against you. But it's so easy to forget that you're like, yeah, but I'm in the room or like, I got asked to tape. Like you have to think about the positives because every single every single person that we've ever seen for a project isn't just there by fluke. Like they're there because we want them to be there and we're rooting for them and we want that want it to go well. So I think um if if I were still acting, I think I would just throw my caution to the wind a bit more and just like have fun with it. Cause the the auditions you see that go well, even if even if the the actor doesn't land the part are the ones that you can just see the actor having fun and leaning into it and like putting themselves into a role and letting all of their own mannerisms permeate, you know, what's on the page. And that's really exciting to see on the other side of the table. So I think that's what I would say, like, just, yeah, you get to like embody this other, this other person. So just go for it, you know, relax, go for it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I want to talk about your film, The Rest of Us, starring Heather Graham and Jodie Balfour. It is directed by Ashley Chinyi and written by Alana Frank. It premiered at TIFF and it is awesome. Thank you. Um, Can you walk us through, uh, from start to finish, how did this film come to be? We optioned it um, at the very end of 2016, early 2017. Wait, I'm just... I'm just going to stop you right there. Um, was it a, a book? Was it a screenplay? Mm. You optioned it. Um, well, tell us what that means. It, it was a script. It was an original screenplay. 
Yeah. So in true like Babe Nation fashion, everything amazing that's ever happened to us has happened by fate. Um, so I met Alana Francis at a party at TIFF. I was at um, a party for my friend Kevin's uh, movie Mean Dreams, which he wrote. And I had just, you know, swung by to say hi and congratulations. And he was like, oh, you know, before you go, you should meet my girlfriend. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I have an Uber downstairs, but like, sure. Yeah. Okay. Fine. And so Kev grabbed Alana and Alana came over and she's just like sweet, very unassuming, like lovely woman. And we just started chatting and, and very nonchalantly, like 10 minutes into a conversation, she's like, oh yeah, I have this script, but like, I haven't shown it to anyone. It's my first script. Like I've, I'm super new to this writing thing. And I was like, oh, well, you know, like I'm happy to, if you ever want to share it, I'd love to read it. And I don't know if that's useful or not. And it, that was literally all it was. It was just like a very casual exchange of politeness. And then I left. That was it. I like, you know, nice to meet you and went downstairs, got my Uber. And then I think the next morning I got an email from Alana with the script and she's like, hey, you know, nice to meet you. Here's my script. <laughs> I was like, okay. And I read it and I, and I like just like, I couldn't cram it into my brain fast enough. Like I loved it so much. And I called Lindsay Tascott and I was like, I'm sending you something. I need you to stop what you're doing. I need you to read it. I need you to call me as soon as you finish it. But like, this girl is so special and we need to just, we need to move. So Lindsay read it. She called me like an hour later and she's like, good Lord, this is beautiful. And we emailed Elena the same day and we're like, we both read it. We absolutely love it. Can we get on the phone with you? We think this is our first feature. And so it happened so fast. (laughs) It was like a matter of days, I think, before we were talking about our plans for it. And so we optioned it, which means that we as the producers take the rights to it so we can apply for financing and put a team together and really drive, drive it forward. And what does that look like in terms of cost? How much did you have to pay for it? And how long were you allowed to have the option for? Every every option is different. For us, with that one specifically, it was there was no money up front. Them all the money was on um, was built into development fees that we would apply for, and also her her fee at the end when we actually shot the film. I'm not going to talk about numbers because that that's you know. Elena's business. Basically, that's how we did it. And we had it for, I think the first option period was two years. And then if we wanted to renew it, it was another year. And I think that's all it was. And I, and I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. So I think we had three, three years in total. Or if, if by the end of that three years, we're like halfway financed, but we're not there yet. Then we have a discussion say, look, our options coming to the end, but we're halfway there. What do you want to do? Then it kind of becomes, it comes up for negotiation again. So where were you guys looking for financing? For this film, so we so we had the option in place by 2017. And by the time we'd finished like developing it, so like there was a period of time at the beginning of 2017 that we, we weren't applying for financing for production. We were just like digging into the script with Alana, talking about directors, talking about cast, like really just getting gushy with the creative, which is the nicest. It's such an intimate part of producing and a period of time that Lindsay and I really try not to rush because so much comes from that from that time and then by the time we actually started applying for financing until the time we were greenlit was only 10 months which is really fast so where where was your first sum of money from so we um so telefilm came in first then we had a post-production deal set up which had an, an investment component in it well uh i have no idea what that means uh can you explain um the production house that we were working with, um, they f- 
basically in exchange for a certain amount of money that we would spend at their facilities doing the post, they would make a cash investment in the film and become executive producers on the movie. Gotcha. Uh, and then we also got the Ontario Creates Film Fund. We did a little, pre- we did a pre-sale with Crave. So what does that mean? You just call them up and say, hey guys, I've got a script. Do you want to do you want to give us some money? Yeah, like more or less. Like there's meetings in there and you talk about cast and, um, you know, you talk about the different iterations and what different cast mean financially um, over others. Because obviously pre-sales and, you know, distribution is very much about cast uh, and names. So there's, you know, yeah, it was always a conversation. But yeah, from the very beginning, they really loved the script and they thought it was fresh and, and interesting. So it was a, in a good place to start for sure. And then we had a bit of private investment at the end. We had tax credits, obviously, which um, every film is entitled to. And then we had the Northern Ontario Heritage Fund, which is a fund that if you shoot a certain distance away from Toronto to the north, you have access to pure grant money. So if you if you can promise you'll spend a million dollars in the north, they'll give you 500000 So that was our sort of our final piece. So when you say private investment money, mm. what does that mean? An individual who put up some investment for the film. And how did you meet this person? Is it someone who was in your satellite? Was it someone who had invested in films before? Did you know them before? No, it was like it was a connection through uh, someone else. And yeah. they had invested in films before. This is kind of kind of what they do. They do. They were they were involved in films before. Yeah, yeah. So when you make um, a deal with Crave, you say, okay, we're thinking we want someone like Heather Graham in our movie, or or someone of that stature. Is any of that confirmed? No, we had no one in place. We had like, we had Sophie Nelise attached, um, which certainly got us in the door. But yeah, it was very much presenting cast lists of like pipe dreams and being like, yeah, this is who we're going after. And they're like, great. Yeah, if you get these people, then it's a different conversation. And then it was literally like, I mean, oh God, I don't know. Like it was like three or four days before we shot and we still didn't have anyone in the Heather Graham role. And, and then Heather's team came back and, really loved it and it was going to happen, but she was more expensive. And I just had this like panicked call to Gosha at Crave. And I was like, okay, like we can get Heather, but she's going to cost X amount of dollars more. Would you up the presale? And she's like, yes, just, just get her to North Bay. And I was like, okay, great. (laughs) So it was like, you know, and I think, I, I think that's another thing. I mean, in producing the funds and the financiers, they're there to help you. Like they want to make good movies and they want to tell good stories. And we're all doing it because we love to be creative. So those conversations, I just felt so lucky that I could call Gosha in that moment and be like, this is what I need, but it means so much for this movie we both love. And yeah, it was, it was a yes. And how did you get in touch with uh, Heather Graham's team? Was it just another cold call? We had a cast, we were working with a New York based casting director who was putting together all of the lists we were looking at and, you know, making the offers and then sort of starting the negotiations before passing them on to me uh, to finish. So yeah, it was very much through through them. And we usually work with casting directors, like we're working with one right now who's just phenomenal. And it's just nice to have that sort of buffer and that sort of very, it's a formality. Like I think actors and agents like to talk to casting directors because it's a, it's a safer relationship. And then when things start moving, obviously it's with the understanding that the producers will take the lead. Mm-hmm. 
And you also had another film at TIFF called White Lie, starring Casey Roll, directed by um, Yona Lewis and Calvin Thomas. So congratulations. Just another really great movie. How long did it take to make that movie from A to Z? Also starring Carolina Bartzak <laughs> in the role of a dance teacher. Yes. Yes. Ballet yes, teacher. Yes, that was the best. Just an Oscar-nominated um, performance. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, but you did such a great job. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, that one was a bit different. So that project was not ours from start to finish. Our dear friend and colleague Karen Harnish was the lead on that one. So she... We'd known she'd been working on it for a couple of years, and I'd read the script quite early on and thought it was really beautiful. She called me, I guess, in September of 2018 and just said, I'm, you know, I'm going through some personal stuff and I would love, I need some help. And so Lindsay and I kind of moved into help on that project for the purpose of sort of closing the financing, getting it into production, and then sort of as it was going into post, sort of Karen came back in and we kind of changed hands again. So it was like a real... It was a team effort. It was like Lindsay and I were so flattered that Karen trusted us with it because having a project like that is so personal and so special, especially with creators like Calvin and Yona, who are just the most interesting, lovely men. So yeah, it happened really fast. We sort of sprang into action, but we sort of just done it on the rest of us. So I think we were we were game to do it again. Yeah, we worked on that sort of through through the fall of 2018. 18. And then we were involved in post and the cuts and stuff, but really it was mostly Karen leading, leading the charge after that. Yeah. And so what was the finance structure for that? You don't have to give me numbers, but yeah, how did you guys assemble yeah. the financing for that? So Telefilm was involved again on that one, um, as was Crave. The way you make it sound, it sounds like Telefilm has a really quick turnaround. How long does it usually take to mm. submit a film application and then actually get the money in the bank. I think the sooner you can start talking about your projects with Telefilm, once they're in a place that you feel confident about, the better. Like you don't just sort of, or we haven't in the past, like just submit a cold application and then we get a, an answer. Like we will have started talking about the project with the executives in the in the financing pool that we're, we're submitting to like months before we submit an application. So it's like, uh. you know, keeping them abreast of the script changes and talking about director choices and like talking about casting and, you know, your vision for the film and where you want to premiere and really kind of folding them into the whole process is really, is really important. But in terms of the actual application, I think you usually apply uh, sort of April, May-ish, and then they usually deliberate sort of, I guess, like June, July-ish. So I'd say fastest turnaround, maybe six weeks, six weeks to two and a half months kind of thing. Um, and then you have that fiscal year to use the money. Oh, so if you don't use the money, you lose it. Yeah, unless something happens, you have a discussion. But typically, that's how it works. You kind of have to you 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 apply to use it in a certain fiscal year, and if you get it, you have you need to go. Yeah. So White Lie had Telefilm. It had Crave again. Um, what else? It had Crave again. Yeah, we had a post deal again there. Um, we had some, some private equity, and what else did we have? there was producer reinvestment. So when the producers put their money back into the movie. Oh, right. I wanted to ask you that. Um, do producers have money? No. 
God, no. No, no, no independent producer has money. Yeah, I mean, that's like a whole other podcast episode. I feel just like producers and money. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you never want to be in a position where you have to reinvest, but sometimes it's just, it just happens. And you're like, look, we've got a tiny gap and we can just put our fees in right now to close our financing and then figure something else out to kind of stopgap it or replace it. But um, unfortunately, it's very, very common, uh, especially in first features. Like, I think, it's weird. It's like first features, you kind of have to just like get one out of your system because it's so hard and there's there's so much you learn that you didn't even know existed. And then you kind of learn everything and you're like, well, I never want to do that again. And I never want to do that again. And I never want to be in this position again. And then it just gets easier. Mm-hmm. Let's say you do have to put your money back in. Um, sorry, what did you call it? A reinvestment. Oh, right. Okay. A reinvestment. And then the movie gets done and the movie gets released. When do you get your money back? Once, oh boy, this is like a, a whole nother podcast. A whole nother podcast maybe, yeah. But yeah, there's something called the recoupment schedule and that sort of it dictates where everyone stands in terms of priority of getting paid back. So the the, the funders, um, both public and private producers, then you get into profits. So it's like a whole, it's a whole chain of command, if you will. Yeah. Gotcha. That sounds quite complicated. So I want to chat a little bit about distribution, which is kind of the un glitzy, unglamorous part of um, filmmaking. Right. Um, But it's kind of important because it gets people to see your movie and you start making your money back. So at what point does a a distributor usually come on board when when you're making a feature? So I'll just speak to sort of the rest of us versus the project we're doing now. So for the rest of us, Level Film, our Canadian distributor, they came on board once we got into TIFF. So we didn't have a distributor until we got the news that we were premiering at TIFF. And then then they came on board and then... Right. So how do they get involved? Have they seen a script or have they seen the movie? Yeah. Like they would have read the script maybe earlier on and said, you know, we love this script, but we love to see a rough cut or a fine cut or or something like that. And then you just kind of keep them in the loop. And then they had seen a cut and they liked it. And then we got into TIFF. So it was like, you know... It was a, a faster conversation. So that's one example of a distributor coming on board quite late in the game. A film we're setting up right now, we've had a distributor on board since we first got the script. So we got the script, we sent it to a distributor, they loved it, and they've kind of been our partner ever since. So it really runs the gamut. It also depends, like, if you're applying for telefilm at the national level, which is like the bigger level, you have to have a distributor on board in order to apply. On the rest of us, which was funded at the sort of the middle level of telefilm, we, because we had the Crave deal in place at the time of our application, we kind of got around needing a distributor. But had we not had the Crave deal, we would have needed to have a distributor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and do distributors um, help finance the film as well? It's dependent on the distributor. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So just a lot of different machinations. Yes. There's really no like one size fits all for any film. Like it's really the sort of financial makeup is different in every case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how often when you're producing a project, um, do you guys have to just abandon it because you either fell out of love with it or it's just not going to happen? Oh, okay. No. And hopefully that will never happen. Yeah. I hope it never will. I I think that's also how you have to approach finding new projects. Like Lindsay and I have a really simple rule that we both have to feel completely obsessed with the project in order to move forward with it. And it's like, if even one of us is like, I loved it. I don't, I'm not like 
I'm, it's not living in my brain rent free forever. Like it's, I loved it, but I, it's not for us. Like if it's that level, we say no. It's really has to be like we have to both just feel like we're completely consumed by it constantly. Because, I mean, these projects take such a long time. You know, they can be very long journeys and it's hard and it's filled with ups and downs. And I think for us, having that creative obsession is the one thing that like really pulls us forward and our love and respect for the creators we work with. So yeah, it's, I mean, like I hate this term because it feels very, I don't know, simplistic, but it's like, if it's not a fuck yes, then it's, then it's a no, you know? So I think that's kind of how we, we look at it. And yeah, and I think that goes hand in hand with thinking about how to make it, you know, it's for us, if it's that good, and if we love it that much, we will find a way to make it and we'll figure out how the market fits or, or how it fits the market. But if that initial like, oh my God, I can't stop thinking about this project isn't there, then mm-hmm. yeah, we just don't bother. And do you guys get a lot of um, unsolicited emails with mm. people wanting to pitch you projects? Or yes. are you guys always going out trying to find your your next project? Um, kind of both. Like we do get a lot of unsolicited emails, which we, we, we've kind of like stopped responding to unless it's someone we know. We have someone kind of vetting our our inbox for us and they send us things that they think could resonate. But for the most part, we don't really respond to those. Agents sometimes send us stuff, which we read, or someone will connect us with a creator who we think is interesting. But mostly it's been us chasing people <laughs> and tracking people that we've loved for a long time and have kind of kept our kept our eye on them and have reached out, you know, in a cold email or a cold phone call and, you know, had a meeting and taken a temperature of what they want to do. And then that usually turns into something. So yeah, it's kind of a mix. Yeah, it's a real it's a real mix of all of all of, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so most people start off by making short films, right? When should when should a producer know that they are ready to graduate from making short films to making feature films? Mm, that's a really good question. Oof, I don't know. I think it's it's so personal. We. I mean, I think we knew we were ready because Alana's script was so good. We just couldn't think of anything except making it. So we were chomping at the bit to to make a feature. Other producers simply are like, I don't like making shorts and I don't like making web series, so I'm going to make a feature. You know, it's sort it's sort of it sort of depends. I would say if you want to make a feature and you think you're ready, you probably are. And what are the things that you wish you would have known before making your first feature? Oh my god. Uh, um, I think, I mean, having a tough, a, t- a thick skin is, 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 is enormous because it's, it's no longer just you and the writer and the director or you and your producing partner anymore. It's, you know, you're, you're opening the door to a lot more voices, both on the funding side and on, you know, agent side and lawyers. And there's just lots of people get involved. And I think having a, having a thick skin and also sticking to your, to your guts and being like, I know what's best for this project. I know how to make it a success is huge. And I think there were definitely moments in the earlier moments of the rest of us where I really doubted myself because I was scared and because I was like, oh, well, all these other people have done this before. I haven't. And I'm the one, you know, driving the ship, so to speak, but I'm the least experienced here. And I really let myself get in my own head in those moments. And I think certain aspects of our prep suffered because of that. When in hindsight, I should have been like, well, no, fuck you. I'm the lead producer. Like, I know what I'm doing. I know this project. 
I know my team, this is how it's going to go. So I think, I think that would have been useful, but it's just so hard, you know, cause there's so like, suddenly it goes from, you know, you're, you're working on this script you love with these people you love and it's very intimate to suddenly like, there's so much, there's so much at stake. You know, there's money on the table, there's people, there's a team, there's insurance, like there's so much happening. And suddenly it's, it's very, it's very easy to feel very far away from the reason you started. And I think constantly, and that's what Lindsay and I are really good at with each other. It's like pulling each other back down to earth and be like, all of this other stuff is going to go away once we're finished shooting. But at the end of the day, like what we saw on the page and what we feel in our relationship with this writer is going to last and we want it to last. And so how do we keep that feeling and kindness alive and, and present all the way through even the most stressful moments? So I think that would be something I would say, like, don't lose yourself or don't let yourself feel lost because if you're moving into production, it means you've done something really right and other people have seen what you've brought to the table and what you've created and have said, this is worth it. Let's do it. So I think just shifting perspective um, in those tough moments is really, really crucial. Mm -hmm. And um, let's say someone pitches you a project, it gets through your email and lands on your desk and you like the script, would you rather have them already have a director or talent attached or would you prefer just to have a, a blank slate? Right. So we've kind of done both. Like, you know, we've had projects that didn't have a director and we, you know, we found someone. We've had projects that did have, I mean, Calvin and Yona wrote it and directed it. They were already attached. So it kind of depends. I think, I mean, it. I think it's also about knowing what your what the producers like who you're pitching like if you you know if you were to pitch us a director who was a man and was doing lots of like gory action films even if the script is good we would be like well this director doesn't fit with our slate whatsoever they're not making movies that resonate with us so it's not for us whereas if it's like here's my script i have some ideas about some directors i'd love to hear your thoughts who might be good like that's a different that's a different conversation so it really depends I think it also depends on how good the script is. Like if the script is, is, is really, really strong, then it's really exciting because then you're like, well, we have, you know, sky's the limit for who we can approach for a director. Sometimes we get scripts that have, you know, a team already attached and the script isn't where it needs to be. And so it's, it becomes very clear that it's like this team has kind of piled themselves on top of the script to sort of make up for the fact that the script isn't ready. And it's like, well, we don't need, we can't even talk about a director yet because the script is not where it needs to be. So let's just shelf that conversation for now. And it's also, I mean, it's so dependent on, you know, what directors want to do next and who wants to do what and what the market wants and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any projects coming up that you would like to talk about? Sure. Yes. We are doing Alana Francis's second feature. It's called Alice Darling. It's about a group of girlfriends who go away under the guise of a birthday weekend only for Alice to realize it's actually an intervention to get her out of a coercively abusive relationship. So it's sort of a thriller. It's very, it's a three-hander for the most part. It's beautiful. It's it's really moving, but it has like this great levity to it at the same time. It's like a true love letter to female friendship. So we're actively working on that right now. We're casting right now. And then we're also doing an adaptation of Francoise Sagan's Bonjour Tristesse, 
which was a very famous French novel from the 50s that we've adapted into an English language modern version set in like the early aughts with this writer named Durga Chubos out of Montreal who writes for Vanity Fair and the New York Style Magazine and she's the editor of Essence and she's just like a real, oh, she's just the coolest. Um, so yeah, we chased her and she wrote the beautiful screenplay. So we're out to directors right now. Wow. That sounds really amazing. And uh, I just want to say thank you again, Katie, so much for um, taking oh, some pleasure. time to chat with me about this and give people a real practical approach to producing. I think the hardest part is, you know, taking that first or second or third step to doing something where, you know, maybe it is as simple as uh, reaching out to someone and saying, you know, hey, I have this idea or you have this script. Let's let's try and make yeah. something. 100%. You have to just you have to just start. I think if you spend your time getting tied up in what should I do first, you'll stay there forever. And you can do I mean obviously as you do it more, you'll you'll refine your own process, but um I mean, oh my God, the things that I first produced, I did them completely backwards. And I didn't know I was doing them backwards at the time, but it was just like where my natural instinct went. Um, and then you learn and hindsight's always twenty twenty, of course. So um, yeah, you just have to start. Thanks again, Katie. And totally. best of luck with all your projects. Thanks, Carolina. Bye. Thank you, Katie Nolan, for taking the time to speak with us about producing. Next week, I speak with actor Mackenzie Davis about her rise to stardom, what she hopes for in her acting career, and what useful and useless lessons we learned from theater school. 